Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. If you're just joining us, you've come at a great time. We are in the middle of, coming to the middle of the end of Self-Knowledge September. Yep, we're big believers in self-knowledge. It's why we're kind of starting our monthly themes with self-knowledge. It's where it all begins. And one of the things, though, about doing that hard inner work of learning about ourselves and taking responsibility for our actions and our lives is how we interact and engage with others. And by the way, don't forget our self-knowledge class on September 29th. If you want to get more details on how to be a part of that at BigSelfSchool.com, you can find out everything you need to know. But to that end of relationships and how we know ourselves through relationships, we sat down with Tara Blair Ball. She is a a coach, a top blogger, an author, an editor on Medium. She receives uh, over 300,000 monthly views of her work. She's been featured in a lot of places, and we sat down and just had a great conversation with her. We're so glad you're here and uh, had a few minutes to come and talk with us. Um, I've read a little bit about you and your writing and your work, and I feel like there's a ton for us to to dive into. So I'm really glad that you're here. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we, one thing we've been thinking about is a lot of philosophy and psychology says that if you want something else to, if you want someone else to change, you must first begin with yourself. And of course, there's a great deal of wisdom and insight into this beginning with ourselves. That's what we're talking about with self-knowledge September uh, ultimately, though, we don't just know ourselves in a vacuum. We have to enter into community and into relationships. But at the same time, there's a lot of self-improvement ideologies that say we shouldn't listen to others because it's always about them. So, so Tara, how can we discern the difference between when we should listen to ourselves and when we should listen to the feedback of others? I have struggled with in my life in general. Um, But I I was thinking about it first as a relationship coach and, you know, fellow human who has friends who look for advice. And I always come from it from a place of I'm here to uh, guide and encourage and provide advice, but I'm not walking around in your body, your skin, living your life. So Mm -hmm. I really come from it from a place of take what you like and leave the rest. Um, And I think that always has to be applied because we can't always know what is going to work best for us, maybe until we try it. And there has to be that, that interplay between instinct and instruction, you know, what feels right or what doesn't. Um, But when I think about it for myself, I also think about the whole idea of I'm going to be ready to do something when I'm ready to do it. And it seems silly, but I, in, in relationships and going through life, there have been plenty of times where people advise me or I read something in a book or was working with a therapist and they suggested I do something. And I kept hearing the same advice over and over again, but it didn't matter until I was ready to implement that advice mm-hmm. in my life, you know, that yeah. Yeah. It, I, it just happened when it was supposed to happen. And I I do think that's where the vacuum piece has to function is that we don't work in a vacuum. We are 
interacting with people all the time. And likely if we keep hearing the same thing over and over again, it's likely something that we do need to think about, but we just may not be ready until we're ready. And we'll know that it will be Mm -hmm. some sort of idea or feeling that uh, now is the time to do that or implement that. But in the meantime, I just really encourage others. And I try myself just to be open, just to listen, you know, just to see you know, maybe it doesn't feel right. Maybe your first reaction is to be defensive. And often for me, when I'm first defensive, or if I have a client first defensive, I kind of want to suss that out. Like, why? You know, Mm -hmm. because that's a strong reaction. So maybe there's something more to that, that you need to think about more later or um, read more about it, you know, to figure out why you're having that strong reaction too, and then Mm -hmm. sort of figure out from there. But in the end, like we will make decisions and decide what's best for ourselves when we do, you know. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, when the student's ready, the teacher comes, yeah. that proverb or adage. Um, and it's funny because and I've used this story a lot. Like I've, you know, for our married life, so Chad and I have been married, I don't even know, 20 years now. And he's in- encouraged me to exercise more. Like that's been like this kind of theme of our marriage. Uh, we, you know, he's like, let's get out and hike, let's get out and walk and let's go mountain biking and all these things. And I would just resist, resist, resist and knew intellectually I needed to do it, but I was never like, it wasn't a thing. And I would get really irritated with him for being so encouraging. And then, you know, fast forward just a couple years, three years ago, when I went through this bad burnout and physically got sick and like, I was like at a point where it didn't matter what anybody else said to me. Like I knew that I had to change my habits and I have been like literally haven't I worked out religiously <laughs> since yeah. for the last three years because it, because it was something that like I got to a point in my decision-making where it was no longer like the pain of not doing it had grown so much more than the, the resistance. And so that's what kind of pushed me to change something. Um, I mean, you would put yourself through like three torturous workouts a week, but you would have to go to the YMCA to do it. And I was just about like moderation. Right. Yeah. Like, I think it was partly you told me that you were telling me to do it. I was like, yep. Uh, So I want to ask you, Tara, one of the things that I really love about your writing is the depth and level of vulnerability that you share your story, you share yourself. Um, I just, uh, there's, I mean, it's almost like I was tearing up a couple times and I was reading about some of, uh, I think it was in the, one of the toxic relationship uh, articles you wrote. But I wanted to ask if you would kind of, um, you know, you've written about your first marriage. Uh, you've written a lot about kind of that experience, what you went through and what you learned from that. Would you tell us a little bit about that and what happened? Yeah, sure. So, it's funny when I was working with um, my agent on that book, <laughs> she would try to work with me on an elevator pitch, and there's just no way to do an elevator <laughs> so pitch hard. of that uh, specific time in my life. But um, I I got married when I was relatively young, 26, and I I had gone through relationship coaching instruction, and so I I thought I I knew what to do to have a perfect, healthy relationship. That if I just followed this specific plan everything's going to work out. It's going to be great. We're going to date for this long, live together for this long, you know, do this kind of work with a couple therapist as part of premarital counseling. We'll get married. Um, it'll be great. Um, but what I realized 
looking back is how much I had avoided, ignored, and denied to stay in something that was really unhealthy and extremely toxic. Um, and a lot of that came out of the fact that I was I married someone who who really let me do that, let me sort of run the show and control. And that's because he was involved in his in his drug addiction. He started using drugs after we'd been together a couple years. Um, and we were together nearly 10 and he used, he had started using drugs when we'd been together about two years. So for, uh, when we were just living together, married, when we had children, uh, he was secretly abusing drugs. And when I discovered them was when our twins, uh, were almost one is when I discovered them in my house. And, I was just really, I mean, my whole life was rocked. I mean, my whole idea of what I should and shouldn't do was rocked. And I had been so rigid with boundaries and rules, thinking that that was going to create the kind of relationship I wanted because I also didn't want to repeat mistakes that I'd seen my parents do. And <laughs> the reason why I called the book The Beginning of the End is because it's it's the beginning of multiple ends. It's the beginning of the end of that marriage. It was the beginning of the end of my thinking about relationships, um, how I viewed relationships, how I viewed myself, because I made every mistake I could have made. I, I really wish I could have handled that situation in a more graceful way, but I, I made every mistake that I could, and I felt like I had permission because I'd done everything right up until then. And so I should, I should have kicked him out of the house because he was an active drug addict. Instead, I decided to stay married to him. And that meant to me and always. So, um, I, you know, we had sex. I immediately got pregnant. Uh, a couple months later, I miscarried during that time. I found out he was compulsively, uh, spending money and racking debt up on credit cards. Then I found out that he had embezzled from his job Wow. Um, the day, <laughs> the day after he, I found out he was embezzling. Um, I met with a divorce attorney about how I needed to protect myself because, in the state we live in, uh, wives or or spouses are held financially liable for the uh, financial decisions of their spouse. Mm -hmm. So um, I could have been held criminally liable for his embezzlement, even though the money had never gone to me in any way. So the day he was, um, I found out that the only way to leave him or the only way to protect myself and my children was to get a divorce. The day he was served with divorce papers, I found out I was pregnant again. I miscarried a few months later. And then I, we were in this weird, are we going to be together? Are we not? And then I had an affair. And throughout all of that, I just did, I just handled everything in a really wild way. And that books, I started writing it as everything was happening. And so uh, it's all about the experience of just being so rocked and not knowing what to do and feeling hopeless. And, you know, back to that first question of, you know, do we listen to ourselves versus other people? I, I felt like I couldn't do either. And so I just was operating on emotion. And uh, it it was a very it was a very life changing experience that took a took a long time to get over and get through, but it's something I did get through. Mm, this is a really powerful story. 
We're echoing over here. Golly. <laughs> um, I'm just going to keep going. So, um, I, like, I think that so many people are going to hear that and they're going to resonate with you and like the, the fear, you know, and I'm, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, core beliefs that we really cling to because they, they serve us well, you know, until they don't serve us well. And so I, like, I guess it's the two part question I have kind of like particular your beliefs that like kept you in that situation and kept you kind of reeling emotionally. Um, and then also if we can like generalize that a little bit, especially since you're a coach, like how do you, how, like, what are those, what's that process? Like, why do we stay in those, um, toxic relationships, you know, and hold on to these old core beliefs? Like what? What's that process? And maybe if you could talk a little bit about how you help people get get through that, get out of that um, rigid thinking. Mm-hmm. So part of that and part of what I work on a lot with toxic relationships is so much of the literature is all about blaming the other person. Mm-hmm. You identify a toxic person and because they, they are a toxic person, it's a toxic relationship. But so much of it really ignores the fact that healthy people do not date and stay with unhealthy people. Yes, talk about that. Yes, right. I, I read that in the talk, in your article, and I was like, "Oh, preach!" Like that's right. so good. And you know, I know for myself that I felt so much that if I could get healthier, that I would be able to lift my ex-husband. That you know, mm-hmm. that my healthiness would just rub off on him and make him healthy. But that's not that's not how it works, you know, like unhealthy people and their behaviors are more likely to drag us down than we are to bring them up. And that's just the nature of what's easier. You know, it's generally easier to go with your status quo than it is that it isn't. And so for myself, I, the hardest part for me in that dysfunctional relationship and how I always guide clients is that we really do have to look at what we brought to the table, why we attracted them in the first place, and then why we stayed with them if we then became aware of their own unhealthy habits. And that all comes back to being responsible for for our own self and our own dysfunction. And there's just too much literature out there that is about uh, avoiding responsibility and placing blame. But it, it has to be us looking at ourselves first, that if I want a healthy relationship, I have to start looking at what about me and what about my behaviors are unhealthy. And, mm-hmm. and that's tricky, right? Because it yeah. is, I mean, there is there is legitimate victimization happening mm-hmm. when I mean you were a victim of an embezzlement, you know, behavior. So 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 it is, I think the nuance there is like how can I simultaneously hold myself responsible for my part while also um, not, you know, like really being careful of that, the tendency to get into that victim place. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard one. It's one that I really struggled with following my separation and divorce because I did feel that was one of my overwhelming feelings is feeling victimized. And in some ways, just the divorce process can can make anyone feel that way because nobody wins in a divorce. It's never it's never a fun process. Like plenty of clients have said to me like, oh, it should have been you should have gotten blank, blank, blank because he did this criminal behavior. And that's just not how the system works. You know, nobody, nobody wins in that process. 
but if I truly want to move forward and if I wanted to have some peace and serenity in my life, that does mean that I have to, you know, try to accept what I can and focus on what I can change and try to be okay with what I can't. You know, it's like the serenity prayer is one of those great prayers from 12 step fellowships to really help people focus on what I can and cannot change. Yeah, I'm wow, that's really powerful I stuff. Like that too. You uh you do write a lot about toxic relationships as we've we've mentioned. Um you have a lot of readers uh every every month through Medium and some other forums. Um I think you've even developed a course around it now. Um it, do you do you teach on it now? Is your course available? Yeah, it actually just launched today. So oh. yeah. Hey, congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So now awesome. until, uh, now for the next week, it'll be at a reduced rate and then it'll go up to the normal rate. So it's $100 off right now. But um, I had so many clients that that's what they wanted to work on. And I, I just can't work on work with everyone that wants to work with me. I just, mm-hmm. I'm only one person. So the course was the really best way to do it. Just providing people steps and tools to allow them to work on it. And then hopefully they'll keep applying it and you know, go work with a therapist if they need any more specific structure and guidance. But it, it was a way that I could, I could meet some needs because there is the literature out there is just really lacking when it comes to how we address ugly things in ourselves that we may not want to address. Could you give us a little taste of the class, kind of maybe a, a snippet or an exercise that you, you help people with? So I, I, I put it in a four-step process of, um, which is, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of taken similar from how Al-Anon and some other science re- research back studies of uh, the four steps of, or the four A's. So the first one is awareness. You know, we got to, you can't change something you aren't first aware of. Um, and then acceptance, awareness, and application. Acceptance is that piece where most people want to skip you know, they want to skip from awareness to action. You know, you're mm-hmm. aware of a problem and you immediately want to jump to fixing it. But with the acceptance piece is where you truly understand the extent of your behavior and how you've acted out on that behavior. And you don't necessarily moralize it or judge it. You just recognize that it is a behavior that you have. There's also a level of grief in that too. Uh, I know for myself that when I had to own my part in my own toxic relationship with my ex-husband, I, I had a lot of grief in realizing that so many of the things that I thought were serving me weren't, that they were just contributing to the whole of the problem. And then we moved to action where you, you know, you decide you're going to do the opposite. And I think that's another key point is that whenever we remove a behavior or, a, or a, an unhealthy habit, you have to replace it with something else. So if my toxic behavior is I'm very uh, controlling, I need to jump to the, the healthy opposite of being more uh, humble and acquiescing. It's not that I want to be subservient or a doormat, but I do need to be aware that I don't have all the answers that I can learn from other people and that I shouldn't try to impose my will and instead be uh, open and willing to hear from other people, which is where humility can come into And lastly, application, that's just where we get to, you know, assess and review as we go along, you know, like seeing how it's working, uh, evaluating, you know, do I need to do something different or is this not, uh, am I not being heard the way I would like to or 
uh, if I'm trying to validate someone's feelings instead of minimizing them, what can I what can I do for this specific person to help them feel that way? So mm-hmm. just moving forward. An application is that process that you just keep going through. You know, like mm-hmm. I find or I found that uh, I, it was a sign of progress when I was making new mistakes instead of old mistakes. So it's great that I'm not repeating. Oh, I love stuff. that. Say that again. <laughs> it's a sign of progress. Is that I'm making new mistakes instead of old mistakes. Okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that is good. That it, it actually, what I was just about to ask is, you know, we hear a lot in terms of failure, it's almost become sort of trite and cliche to be like, Oh yeah, well, you know, learning's an opportunity or failure is an opportunity for learning and fail fast and all of that. But you know, it's not failure is failure is like what, and it's like, it's, it, it hurts and it is a setback unless, unless you actually do some work, um, some self-awareness work to learn about the experience. Sounds like you did a lot. Can, can you offer like kind of a, an overall takeaway that you learned specifically from your experience? Uh, in, in working through my own toxic relationship, is that what you're meaning? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, really what I learned is that there's no plan. <laughs> I think that's what I like to say is that hmm. no special plan. Uh, we can't plan how things are going to uh, last and because things are imperfect. Um, and it goes back to, as well is that there has to be a balance between instinct and instruction. I was so focused on following instruction, following what I'd read, what I'd researched, uh, what I'd learned in relationship coaching, and that that was the instruction. If I follow this instruction, then then I will get this result. Um, but life isn't a math problem. I can't just like make another human follow the same instructions when we look at the same relationship. And it has to be a balance with the instinct piece. Cause if I'm, if I'm too into instinct, then I'm probably avoiding, you know, actual good advice or good and good things that I need to hear as well. It has to be a balance between the two where I recognize my own self-awareness and what I need while also taking into account what I get from others. So I'm, I have to ask you this, what's your Enneagram number? Do you know? I don't. Oh, okay. Ooh. <laughs> I always I always listen for that like the backdrop of conversations to see if people if they're have you taken the Enneagram? I haven't. Okay. Oh that's why we'll, she doesn't know it. We'll talk offline yeah. about that. I, uh, yeah, it's power like like the 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 words that you're using resonate so much with me. So that's why I'm like, I wonder if she's two. <laughs> type two. So we'll have to talk later because I yeah, I think that um there's so much about kind of this almost the subconscious stuff that we play out in these relationships. And as you were talking through those steps, it made me think about growing in awareness. And then you start to figure like you really confront yourself. Like, why do I have a need to, uh, I don't know, control or please you or, you know, whatever might be the behavior. And so some of such, so much of that for me has been, um, unearthed through this, through the Enneagram process. So that's why, that's why I was wondering that. Interesting. Well, well, speaking of, um, making sort of better decisions, I I really liked in one of your articles, um, you wrote about Solomon's paradox. That was so good. And how we can use it to make better decisions. Can you tell our audience 
what it is and, and how it applies. So Solomon's Paradox was, uh, there was a reach researcher named Grossman who discovered that people are more likely to uh, do better at advising other people than themselves. And he mm. calls it Solomon's Paradox because of King Solomon in the Bible was great at, you know, great at advising others, but made disastrous decisions in his personal relationships as well as taking care of the kingdom. So it's this idea that we have to be objective and step back, and that can feel nearly impossible if it's our own life. And I, I know this just as a relationship coach, that, and I imagine this is for therapists and anyone else in a guidance role, is that I bet it's so much easier for you to advise someone else than for oh, you to advise yourself. And uh, that's, that's so much of my work in, um, in toxic relationships and working through my previous marriage and all of that is just being aware that I am not the best person to advise myself. But there is a process that you can work through it. And I discovered it myself just uh, when I learned about this and uh, applied it to my own life is when I was younger, you know, I was going through a specific situation and I was making tons of poor decisions around it. But then a friend of mine went through the exact same decision and then I gave her the advice that I needed. I was able to see it from her from her perspective. And so that's one way that if you're dealing with a personal issue or a relationship issue, job issue, is try to think about if you if your best friend was going through it, how would you advise them to handle it? You know, what would be your exact wording for that? Uh, you can also think about uh, writing about the situation and uh, about yourself, but in the third person. So like, in my case, Tara. Tara's dating a man who keeps cheating on her, what should she do? <laughs> and, then, and then responding to that. So using, using those sort of buffers to get to that. But as we've talked about previously, you know, you're going to decide to follow advice whenever you decide to follow them. So it's, it is a step toward making a better decision. Is it going to make you make a better decision? No, it's just a thought process to get you there. For myself, it always plants the seed of, oh, this is probably what I should be doing. And then when I'm ready to do it, I'm ready to do it. But uh, it is that process just to get there. Yeah. And I earlier, um, you, you, you mentioned grief. And I thought that was really profound because I do think this process brings up grief and loss, especially if you get to a point where you're like, I, I can no longer have this relationship in my life. Um, so yeah, that part of, I think there's, there's, we're so busy avoiding that grief that's inevitable when you have to make decisions and loss happens that I think people, we don't, we get right up to the, the front of this process uh, and you have it broken down in this article, which I thought was really great. Uh, get distance, uh, accept the wisdom, wisdom you come to, and then act. Mm -hmm. And I think that accept the wisdom you come to is that listening, um, kind of honoring what your instinct is saying, and then the acting. I think that whole process, how do you, how, like, what do you do with the grief in that? Is that just like a kind of a, a traditional kind of processing grief and those emotions that come with that? Or does it look different when you're working with people through this stage? So when it comes to uh, my clients, it really depends on how they handle grief. And grief is, 
grief is a funny animal for everyone. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for myself that grief can be the hardest, uh, hardest emotion for me to want to feel or deal with feeling. I'll do anything. I will move furniture. I will, you know, clean all my house. I will go <laughs> yell at someone. I, I will do anything to not, uh, to not feel grief. And, uh, it ha- for each person, it has it is a unique experience in how they choose they choose to feel it. For myself, what I also say is that uh, you can't avoid grief forever. So it whether you try or not, it, it's going to come up. You know, and too many people, unfortunately, if you skip from that first step of becoming aware, and then you skip that grief place before you start action, then you'll probably go back and go back and do what you shouldn't be doing. I mean, that's sort of how it is. If you haven't moved through that grief, however you need to personally move through it, then you're going to go back and do that unhealthy behavior, be with that unhealthy person, uh, Mm. whatever, because that's what happens when we haven't truly accepted that that's what we need to do. And if that's what we truly need to do, there's going to be, there's going to be pain and grief in that process, whatever it happens to be. So grief is, it's that door to your liberation. Like you can't not go through it, right? Yeah. It's like, that's where your freedom is. I mean, I would have, when I was going through my, my divorce, I mean, I had to wear, I had to take sunglasses everywhere with me because I didn't know where I was going to start weeping. I might go to the grocery store and see a couple shopping with their, their children and start crying. I mean, I just didn't know where it was going to hit me. And that's one of those aspects of grief is you can really only avoid it for so long. You can you can drink or drug or have sex or, you know, move furniture or whatever you decide to do, but uh, it's going to happen at some point if you keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, you know, we also talk about, you know, kind of learning about the story, the stories that we tell ourselves and thinking about, you know, our own identities, the ones that we embrace about ourselves. And of course we want to change those stories if we're, if we're wanting to grow. And I guess you literally, you told the story of yourself um, and probably I, I assume grieved through some of that in writing the memoir, how therapeutic of a process or how hard even was it to, to write that? It was, you, you were so vulnerable and authentic. Oh yeah. It was excruciating. <laughs> and then the editing process uh, was yeah. a little, was a little bit less excruciating, um, you know, but there, there's proof that the more we tell a story, the easier it can get. And mm-hmm. there has to be a difference between reporting and actually feeling a story. And, um, but for myself, just the more I, the more I told it and accepted that, that that was what happened, the easier it was for me to work through it. But a big part of being able to change a story is to acknowledge that we have the power to, to write it to begin with. You know, I felt when I'm in that victim place and I felt that way for a bit, when I'm in that victim place, like I don't feel like I have any control. Everything's hopeless. I am helpless and I can't change a story if I feel like I'm a victim of everything. So it has to be about owning that this is what, this is what I did and I can change it now. I don't have to be stuck and mired in what it is now. And for me, a lot of that was just learning how to talk to myself differently about my story. You know, not to, you know, if someone asked me, you know, why did you get divorced? You know, instead of me saying, well, I'm my ex-husband, blah, 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 blah. Just being like, it just, 
it was better for both of us, you know, being able to just talk about it differently. And I believe a lot in affirmations. I'm, I do them with my clients. I do them with myself or with, did you just catch? I have multiple selves now. With <laughs> <laughs> yourselves. With <laughs> myself. That's right. Yeah. But affirmations, I mean, like just yeah. really thinking about how you talk to yourself when you're alone, like, you know, being able to say, um, I'm capable, I can do this, uh, instead of being stuck in that, I felt, I mean, I had toddler twins, you know, when I left my ex-husband, uh, and I wanted to tell myself that I couldn't handle being alone, that I couldn't handle raising them by myself, that I was doing them a disservice by leaving their father, and I really had to t- change how I talked to myself so I could believe and do what I wanted, what I wanted. How do you talk to yourself now? You know, when those, those old scripts kind of resurface, cause they do, you know, we, we don't, they're, they're there. How do you, what, how do you replace them with, with what? So it really depends on the situation. When I was doing this course again, uh, I found, you know, when I strike out and do something new, I can find those old voices come up of like, why are you doing this? No one's going to listen and no one's going to, no one's going to like it. And, uh, you know, I, I start with like baby steps, like, well, I'm going to try anyway, or I'm really enjoying this part of the process and I'll just see what happens. And, you know, and then I get to the place of like, you know, giving myself credit for small victories. So like when I had my first pre-order, I'm like, I have my first (laughs) pre-order, you know, instead of discounting it as, uh, oh, it was only one or, you know, like, Just focusing on those tiny little things to, you know, and now I'm excited and I have many, I have several students already signed up and started with the course. And, you know, it's, if I hadn't followed through, then I wouldn't be here in this time today. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm a big believer and, you know, sometimes our stories are awful, you know, we don't want to go through them, but we did and we're where we are because of them often. And we learned what we needed to learn through that. So maybe not, that's not how we wanted to get it, but that's what we got. So you've, you know, you've got, you've gained so much from that. So, and, and and being able to kind of replace that story with some, with a new track, like, I think that's important. Yes. So I want to ask you a little bit about your, uh, we, we talk a lot about habits on our podcast and just kind of practices and rituals that sustain you. Um, and in, in particular, since we're talking about self-knowledge, like, what, what do you do? Is it like a daily, weekly kind of practice or routines that keep you connected with yourself? I believe a lot in curating what I bring in or hear. Uh, so I'll explain that a little bit more. But um, I, I do not watch uh, negative television shows or violent television shows. Um, I listen to a lot of like upbeat podcasts where people give, you know, tips for getting, you know, for doing like what y'all are doing, like happier, healthier habits. Um, I read self-help books like that. I read books with positive messages. I listen to music that's positive. I just, and a lot of it comes just from my previous experience is that I've had so much sadness and awfulness that happened in my life and that I don't want any more of that. I don't want to invite it in if I, when I have a choice. So mm-hmm. I really try to curate what I bring into my life. And it just helps me have a more positive mindset because it can be so easy for me to get 
super negative or critical or judgmental. But if I have everything in my ear and the people I care about around me who are also a positive, affirming people, then it's just easier for me to, to be that way. And I had to change nearly everything about my life when I got divorced, but those were huge ones that, you know, some of my relationships were no longer serving me because unfortunately I had toxic behaviors and I had attracted friends who had similar toxic behaviors. And as I was growing those relationships, a lot of them naturally sort of fell to the wayside. And, um, and I sought out people who were, who were looking to do more of what I was doing of just having a you know, just changing our lives and trying to thrive instead of just survive. Mm-hmm. I love, and I love your radical responsibility that you take for yourself where it's so easy and it would be easy for you to kind of, um, you know, offload the responsibility on your ex-husband or, you know, whoever, but you really, I, I love that. And I hope people can hear that and take that like this self-knowledge work. It really does start with the self. Like that's right. where it, we have to, be very like radically responsible for our lives. And so that message is, you know, coming out loud and clear and I really dig it. (laughs) That's good. I think you just gave it a, uh, you just gave it a title. (laughs) (laughs) I dig it. No, uh, no radical responsibility. Tara, this has been, uh, really profound. Um, uh, I didn't didn't know what to expect, um, but it is it's great to meet you this way and uh, yeah, hear more about your story. Thanks for spending uh, a little while with uh, with us and our audience. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It was it was really fun, and I enjoyed y'all's questions. Tara, can you tell our audience where to find you? Yeah, so I am. Uh, my website is TaraBlairBall.com. So it's T A R A B L A I R Ball.com, and that's where you can find. Uh, links to all my writing, my book, uh, my new course that's out um, through Thinkific, which is such a funny name, but uh, <laughs> that, that's where you can find all that stuff. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, you know, the at symbol Tara Blair Ball and that. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're um, followers now. Um, well, this has been great. Thank yeah, you we'll so much. We'll put some uh, links in our show notes and uh, get this podcast out right away so people can respond to the discount. Cool. Thank you, Tara. Cool. Thanks this so much, Tara. To, to chat with you and to get familiar with all the, the great work you're doing in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on Twitter. And we are also at the Big Self Society on Medium, where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision making, or anything else? And anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.